Welcome everyone to Inspired by Math. In this podcast series, I interview people who are inspired by math and who are inspiring others. I'm really excited today to have with me Tim Chartier, author of Math Bites. It's a brand, brand new um, Princeton University Press published book titled, so it's, it's Math Bites, Google Bombs, Chocolate Covered Pie, and other cool bits in computing. And it's, and it's almost here in time for Pi Day. It's a little bit late, but not too late. So welcome, Tim. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah, so um, I am excited to have you on this podcast series because um, um, you may or may not know, but um, Princeton University Press sends me a lot of their uh, math books, and quite a few of them I get really excited about, and then I... Um, usually contact Jessica over at, at, at um, Princeton University Press, and I say, hey, can I interview the author? And she usually um, makes, you know, makes the connection. This particular book I like because you go into some really fun, what I would definitely call elegant little math bites, so lots of little stories and puzzles. And, and I say elegant because... Any math puzzle that you can explain to a middle school student and they will understand what the puzzle is, um, is an elegant puzzle, especially if it's then difficult and challenging and has many layers to it. So congratulations on um, writing a book of elegant math puzzles. Oh, thank you. That's very meaningful. That means a lot to hear you say that because the book, is, as you said, is quite new. And so part of, um, I actually have a performing background and I've um, have professional training in mind, and Marcel Marceau would often say when we trained with him, because he would talk when you trained with him, that you create your piece of work and then you let the genius of the audience tell you what you've done. And um, my hope was that it would be these elegant bites, but it's deeply meaningful as people reflect that back to me. Yeah, yeah, yes, um, definitely. So, I, yeah, definitely want to talk to you about your performing background. In fact, that's yeah. that's my first question. But before we go there, uh-huh. let me give a little bit, a read read a bit for our listening audience of your bio. Okay. Tim Chartier is an associate professor in the Department of Mathematics and Computer Science at Davidson College. In 2014, he was named the inaugural. Mathematical Association of America's Math Ambassador, and I want to ask you definitely about that. It's on my list. He is a recipient of a National Teaching Award from the Mathematical Association of America, published by Princeton University Press. Tim authored Math Bites, which we're going to dive into. Uh, let's see. And you co-authored Numerical Methods, Design Analysis, and Computer Implementation of Algorithms with Anne Greenbaum. As a researcher, Tim has worked with both Lawrence Livermore and Los Alamos National Laboratories on the development and analysis of computational methods targeted to increase efficiency and robustness of numerical simulation on the lab's supercomputers, which are among the fastest in the world. Now, you may or may not know that um, Los Alamos is is in my neck of the woods, being in Santa Fe. Oh, nice. So I'm about 40 minutes away, and the reason I'm in Santa Fe is because I came here to be closer to my brother and his family, and my brother was a contractor at at the lab in Los Alamos for, for a bunch of years. Oh, nice. That's a lovely area. It, it, it's a beautiful area, yeah. yeah. 
Um, and Tim's research with and beyond the labs was recognized with an Alfred P. Sloan Research Fellowship. Awesome. <laughs> okay, so let's jump into some questions. We may go off on tangents, but um, you're a performer, so you're not afraid of tangents, I bet. No, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so all right, so about the, this performer mm -hmm. um, performance thing. So before you were a math professor, you were a performer. Do you, do you still perform? Tell, tell us about, you said mime. Tell us more about that. Yes, I began performing when I was 11. And by the time I graduated from college, I was performing nationally in puppetry, actually, at the time. But I'd already started training in mime. And I began performing uh, nationally and then in international settings in both puppetry and mime um, by the time I was in college. I do still perform. My wife and I, my wife actually has trained in mime as well. She had a, a dance and gymnastics background when we met. And we've developed a math show, that a mime show that introduces math ideas, and it's called Mimatics. So we're actually going to be performing in South Korea this summer, and then we, uh, it looks like we may be in Japan as well, because if we're going to go that far, <laughs> you might as well um, visit a couple countries. And it looks like we have interest in performing in Japan as well. Um, do you, all right, will you have a video? Will you perform it um, in the U.S.? Yeah, we perform throughout the United States. If you look up my name and uh, Infinite Rope, uh, that's probably the easiest one to find. You can see some videos of our performing on Vimeo. Uh, at the time we posted them, YouTube was more restrictive in the length of time that uh, a video could be. That's not true now, but that's why they're not on YouTube. But you can find uh, the Infinite Rope is a very popular one. And then there's one with plungers that um, has a bit of a surprise in it. So that one, I'll just say it has plungers. And then there's also one with my wife, Tanya, where we use a dryer vent that's large enough that I can get inside of it. And it's 25 feet long. And it, it, if nothing else, it's a wonderful exercise in just um, geometric spatial thinking because most people get very disoriented as to where I am in the tube. And we've even gone to, like, schools where the, we do that sketch, and then we just sit and talk about how do you think Tim did this move, and then the kids guess, and then I, we show it to them. And even after they see the solution, sometimes it's hard to still visualize, which is really instructive in kind of mathematical thinking in that you can understand some, something and still get confused, and that's part of the beauty of math. <laughs> yes. Um, I'm, I'm still not quite seeing the, the connection. Yes, I can see that there's, there's geometry, there, there's some mathematical ideas, and maybe it'll become more obvious as I watch some of your videos, but in your bio, you worked on development and analysis of computational methods <laughs> targeted to increase efficiency and robustness of numerical simulation, dot, 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 dot. How does a career in performing, in doing MIME, um, translate into becoming a math professor? Well, it, the answer is actually quite simple. When I was in college, my parents told me I needed to have a backup for my performing career. And so <laughs> I, I was taking math and computer science because I was very good at them. And uh, it was actually when I took math proofs that uh, I absolutely fell in love with math. I was very, very good at calculus. And um, I did it quickly and took a lot of it so that I could teach, actually, at that time in the high school level. But when I took proofs, and particularly when we studied infinity, um, I just was totally taken with it. It was something beyond what I could see in my mind, and yet at the same time I could understand it. 
through the analysis of mathematics. And in particular, when my professor said that in this course you're going to see elegant mathematics, that was something that I had never thought of mathematics as being. It might be logical. It might be something where I could get it right or get the solution. But I remember one time I had a proof, and a friend of mine got one that was shorter and crisper, and it really, truly was beautiful. And that was when I never looked back. That was when I just kept taking more and more math that had that proof-based. And then I really enjoy applied math, and there are a lot of applications that have a lot of theory in it as well as the application, which is what drives me toward uh, computational math and the types of things I've done at the labs. So it's it's very intriguing to me because most people I would say that I talk to who love math the way you and I do um, will have had an experience maybe in high school or junior high school where they had a teacher who inspired them. It's It's not so common to hear that yeah, you know, I was good at math, and and then and then I saw the light in college. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot. I mean, there's a lot of truth in that. I was very, very good at it um, in high school, but I also was very, very good at performing. I I was able to um, perform in front of hundreds of people, even as a youth, with my own performing, and I loved having people get excited, and I just didn't see that as something that was done in math until, for me, proofs. And then the more I looked toward it with teaching and, and did have very good teachers, as, particularly as I took those upper-level courses. It's not that I didn't have good teachers for the lower-level courses, but the upper-level courses, particularly in applied math, it could just change your whole worldview in terms of what you could do. And that was very, very exciting to me. So it is a bit of a different story, but to go with that, I had a friend in grad school, because it's not always easy to have this strong artistic side and meld that with a math career at the same time. And one of my friends once told me, he said, you know, I really don't want you to ever think that you should leave the field, because I think if nothing else, you as a professor say to many other people, you can have a journey like mine or a journey that's all your own. And I've always remembered that when times that kind of oddity of my journey can make things kind of unclear as to how to walk, you know, because it's not even the path less trodden. It's just not trodden. I mean, you you know, mime is, is rare enough, but then when you're trying to do that with the kinds of things I happen to also do, it's definitely its own little journey. Sure, and, you know, and, and I would venture to guess, and I don't know anything about mime or really anything about... Um, performing, but I would guess that the artistic and creative side that drives your performance also drives your love of math, and it's it's just a hunch. Yeah. Um, because I have always loved math because of the beauty of it, not because of you know finding solutions to equations or doing arithmetic, but but yeah. but for me it's a, it's about seeing patterns and such, and I'm gonna. I'm actually gonna, going to ask you, I have, a, I have a question later down on my list about your view of, of math that I'm going to get to in a bit. Okay. Um, but but um, I'm, I'm also interested to know, so you teach, you're an associate professor in the Department of Mathematics and Computer Science mm -hmm. at Davidson College. What 
what are you teaching these days? Who are you teaching to? And and then and then also interested to know about your research. Sure. Uh, right now, I'm actually teaching non-majors. I teach one of the entry-level kind of general distribution requirement courses. It's finite math, so that is an applied mathematics course. And that's actually one of the courses I request to teach where we can put in requests for what we want. And I really like that course because a lot of the students who walk in there, Davidson's a highly selective liberal arts school, so we have very strong students, but it doesn't necessarily mean they're very, very strong in math. And for some of these students, they've never had a positive experience in their math learning. And by the end, like, we're deep in the term right now, and it's so much fun to see them enjoy coming to class, and, you know, they can get frustrated with probability, but then they'll, they want to know, well, help me again remember what types of things this helps me understand in the world. And getting them to a point where they see that they're learning these tools to understand things and that you can begin to, if nothing else, see how bad we are as people at thinking and prob- thinking about probabilities, like how off we are in itself is, is just very insightful. And so I love that. I teach a lot of courses in applied mathematics. I teach math modeling um, and data analytics is kind of folded into that course. And then I've been teaching computer science courses as well. Okay. And are you... I'm also doing doing research. Oh yes, the um, my big branch of research now is in data analytics. I do a lot of work in ranking, and then some work in what's called clustering. So I do a lot in uh, sports analytics, and more of the reason we do sports. I work a lot with Amy Langville of the College of Charleston. She's done a lot of work in like ranking with uh, internet search like Google, and then sports ranking as well. And one of the reasons we do sports is not so much because we're sports fanatics, but because the data is there. But it's still so random that you've got, to go with kind of Nate Silver's term, you've got a signal, you've got some truth or some trend, but there's also the noise. And so you've got the noise, and can you see something through it? And the neat thing for me is that not always. I mean, sometimes you're just off and you're wrong, and maybe flipping a coin would have been better. But over the long haul, um, you will figure something out. Like if somebody flips a coin in its head eight times in a row, there's no way I was going to predict that on a fair coin. So, but I will be able to say, wow, that's amazing. <laughs> and so I'm able to appreciate the anomaly, but it doesn't mean that I can predict it. In some cases you can, but in most cases you can't, particularly if it's random. So do you, this is kind of an off-the-wall question, but um, do you think the stock market is random? There's a randomness in it, and it's part of the reason, um, like, I've given talks at um, hedge fund firms and things like that on the type, type of research that I do, and they're very interested in these types of ideas because, again, they are looking for that um, trend within the noise. So there is a, a certain – it's a dynamical system, so the, and it has that chaos in it. And so I mean, part of the point of chaos is that you have patterns within randomness but you still have a certain amount of randomness at the same time. So I see it as a similar type of thing. I often have people from those fields talk to me about their work, and it's more they want to know what I do, and then they transpose it into that setting. Okay. All right, so then the, the next obvious um, question, and, and, I, and I promise you and I promise our <laughs> listeners that we will get to talking about your book. Okay. Um, and actually, this, this, this is kind of a segue 
um, into the book because you have this in the book, but I know you've gotten a whole lot of press um, for your new book because there is a tie-in to the the NCAA and March Madness. And yeah. um, tell our listeners what what all the hoopla is about. Well, this year in 2014, Warren Buffett uh, insured a billion-dollar prize for anyone that submitted to their bracket challenge via Yahoo, and was and if someone was able to have a perfect bracket, which means they perfectly predicted a series of 63 games that account for the March Madness tournament. And the first round has 32 games, and the second round has 16. And by the end of the second round, uh, over 8 million people, nobody had a perfect bracket anymore. But in preparation for that, with a billion dollars on the line, um, a lot of people wanted to know the methods that um, Amy and I had developed that uh, can be applied to March Madness. And I've had students that just learn it in class, create brackets that have beat 99.9% uh, .9 of over 5 million brackets and so forth. And so a lot of the press wow. was talking about those methods, and that is in the book. I talk about um, the uh, how, like what happens if you try to just work with the seeds, and I just apply that to 2013. And then I talk about um, our methods, which use linear algebra, and I kind of lay out one of the methods, and if somebody was really interested, they can easily find other resources online. But the book kind of gives you uh, an entryway to see what the methods do. Okay, so there's there's some incentive for people. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, right. But now, but so are you saying that 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 it's that it's over? People can no longer. I'm being. I'm showing my ignorance here. People can no longer oh. claim the billion dollars. No, not anymore. They, you will wait a year, and we'll see if Warren Buffett uh, decides to insure the another prize. He he said in the press about a week ago that um, he'll probably do it again, and he'll actually make it easier. But you know, <laughs> I'm not sure exactly what easier means. I mean, it's incredibly improbable. So he could make a quote, you know, twice as likely than it was, and it's still pretty improbable. But um, it'll be fun to see. There's been a lot of research questions um, that we've been able to look at and tackle um, through the year uh, and then through the tournament that we look for as things emerge. And so uh, it'll be fun for us. But, yeah, that's the, the prize is over. But even if he doesn't do it, ESPN has an online tournament where if you had a perfect bracket, you'd win a million dollars. And then the winner of the tournament overall, whoever has just the best uh, predictability, with their scoring system wins $10,000. And Buffett's competition, it's actually not Buffett, Quicken Loans competition, um, the top 20 all receive uh, $100,000. But given this year, I think you pretty much needed to be from Connecticut or, or, um, or Kentucky, be one of their fans to <laughs> probably claim the prize. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> all right. So, so now that we've jumped into the, the, or at least dipped our toe in the, um, book. So, so what is Math Bites about, and, and what inspired you to write it? Math Bites is really uh, a book about math and computing, and it tries to kind of survey various questions that someone could look at, many of which kind of have a certain sense of either um, a puzzle or just a certain sense of whimsy. Uh, I just spoke yesterday at an undergraduate research meeting at the University of Tennessee at Tennessee Knoxville. And I actually started the whole talk by just 
showing topics I had done in the book, like creating mosaics out of M&Ms, and then there's a part on facial recognition and your celebrity lookalike. And I just talked about that each one of those started with just the question of, huh, I wonder if I could do this. And then I just start playing with it. And so I try to um, put into the book that sense of wonder and questioning, but then also how does it work so that the reader can understand how it works so then they could possibly think up their own types of questions and their own types of techniques and methods as well. Okay, yeah, and, and my impression from having read you know, the, the, maybe the first half or so of the book uh-huh. is that these are the kinds of problems that um, a young student can understand, and probably some of these look like they're hard enough that even a professional mathematician would either have a very difficult time or not be able to solve. Is that, is that, am I right? Yeah, yeah and that was, that was the goal of the book, um, was that it would reach all the way down to... Um, a talented uh, middle school level, I think a certain amount of the book through the lens of it, well, and I've worked with teachers to develop parts of the book, and they have used it just in a general middle school setting. And um, they, there, there's a part about um, doubling and exponential growth that, you know, that can relate to twi- uh, Twitter and tweeting and how a movie can bomb on its o- opening weekend because something goes viral. And for those students, that's very helpful because often they're just looking for things that make the ideas that they're learning feel relevant. There's a part on Angry Birds in connected to quadratic functions, and that just came from me making a passing comment to a group of teachers that underneath Angry Birds, they use a model of flight that doesn't have air resistance. So that means that the red bird at the beginning of the game is following um, a parabola. That's the path. And right. suddenly the teachers got so excited. And so I helped kind of work out the equations that the bird's following and so forth. And when I did that, one of the teachers actually immediately was using it in her class because that's the topic she was covering. She had very weak students that really struggled with math. And by teaching it that whole concept, even the terminology that they needed to know for the end-of-year testing by thinking of it in the context of Angry Birds, she found that they were not only able to learn it quicker, but then when they got word problems, they were, <laughs> they were actually transposing them into the setting of Angry Birds and doing a better job at answering the questions. <laughs> so like if they got a ballistic question or whatever, the, you know, or on these end-of-year tests, they'd say, okay, well, what would this be in Angry Birds? And they're like, oh, yeah, and then they could actually move forward. And that was entirely an unintended. I just, I don't teach that age, so that would be very difficult for me to perceive would be an application. But there are lots of things in the book that have those types of applications because I've seen it with the teachers that I've worked with. And so it has that. And then I, I also had as readers um, other professors and then even some former students that were getting PhDs, and they commented that they very much enjoy the various parts of the book. And the book actually kind of ramps up toward um, linear algebra toward the end and even talks about what's called Perron's theorem, which guarantees that Google will get an answer. I mean, this whole model they built works because of a math theorem, which is um, one of the big models that they use in web searching, which is just fantastic. (laughs) As a math professor, I love the fact that this theorem that's been around for a while guarantees the validity and reliability of this like billion dollar idea. So 
you know, it's it's very interesting that you yes that you mention um, the the chapter on Google because I have worked for a number of years um, in the search technology oh, um, industry. I work on on something called federated search, which is doing real time searches of a bunch of bunch of databases. Oh wow! Getting the, getting the results and aggregating them together. So it's it's sure. a different model from the crawl and index yeah. thing that is Google, but. Um, yes, I am generally familiar with you know the whole page rank algorithm, yeah. and if and if enough people link to you and and say that your site is credible, I guess by linking to you is is is, a, is one way without gaming the system. Yeah. Then 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 your site pushes up um, in the search rankings, and of course there's that whole the whole world of search engine optimization that yeah. everybody tries to exploit their <laughs> understanding of. Of the algorithms, yeah, exactly, to unnaturally push their results up to the top because nobody nobody goes beyond page one, and it's even questionable if people will scroll down to yeah the bottom yeah, of I page one. The, yeah, I forget the numbers, but in the book uh, in Math Bytes, it actually um, refers to a Wall Street Journal article that actually talked about even beyond the top one. It, I was surprised. I I I was very surprised by how quickly. But but you have that sense that. You know, even on the first page, even being toward the bottom is like death. You know, <laughs> so um, right, right. Yeah, I mean, people are competing for that for very real reasons. Yeah, well, I, I have a I have a slightly amusing um, story about Google and how good it is. Um, mm. So, when you and I were exchanging email messages right before this interview, and I asked you for your phone number, and you sent me. You sent me your phone number. It was missing a digit. Oh wow! <laughs> so, so I said, well, you know, I know you're online because we've just corresponded. I could send you an email and saying, okay, what's that third digit? But you know what? I just took the nine digits that I had. I typed your name and those nine numbers into Google, and the third result right in the title had your had your phone number. Oh, that's amazing! Oh, that's great! That's I'll use that in class. That'll be wonderful. Yes, and Google this week, so that'll be great. Yes, because it's it's a great conversation starter about how did Google know, right? I gave it nine digits, and your phone number is ten, and somehow it decided that my nine was close enough to make that relevant. To make that relevant, and to put it, it didn't put it at the very top. It put us as the third result, but I was motivated, so I was willing to read through to the third. (laughs) I mean, first page. (laughs) <laughs> and so, yeah, you're willing to hang in there. I, I was willing to hang in there, and, and um, um, but even with the top result, the top couple of results, I could already see a pattern in the the prefixes for phone mm. numbers. Yeah. So I would have I would have guessed that the second digit is nine, and I would have been good. Yeah. Oh, that's neat. Um. So did did. Well, so you, you so you gave an example of right the the Angry Birds and how that example mm-hmm. um, came up in in a conversation. It, you know, in general, would you say that that these ideas came up just in conversations with people? I'm always interested to know how people get inspired because there's a lot of original material yeah. in in your yeah. book, and I have and I have read lots and lots and lots of books you know over decades about interesting math ideas. So I'm always delighted to see new ideas or new twists on old ideas. So how'd you do it? 
Yeah, it's really an agglomeration of different um, different places. Like the the way that I start, at least the um, oh, you know, this is a better way to talk about it. And then I'll go back to what I was saying. One of my students really hit the nail on the head. He said, "This is you've taken like the greatest hits of what you use in class to grab us, and then added a whole bunch of new stuff." And I think that's probably the best. That's really true. Is that I really took things in the beginning that I use in class to pull people into applied math. And in fact, when I first was writing the book, I had just taught the math modeling course, which some of this overlaps with, at the University of Washington. And I was on sabbatical, and my wife just said, you need to sit down and start writing now. Don't wait, because you can, you can see that class. You can see them smiling. You can see them responding. And let that be the first audience that you write to. And that really helped with the first draft. And then some of the ideas come from the mimatic show. We aren't just fully silent. We'll do a silent mime sketch, but then we'll talk about the math ideas with the audience. And because it can be kids to senior adults, we need to do that in, in fun ways. And so the, the way that I initially motivate PageRank actually comes out of the mimatic show. That's actually what's developed through public performance. And then other ideas were just places where I just wanted to think of something, like when I show how to make mazes um, using traveling salesman problem art, but you could just do it with putting dots on a page yourself. Um, that came from just wanting to think of a new idea with the traveling salesman problem, because I really like, it's called TSP art. I just love that stuff, and I was trying, I kept thinking it'd be so cool to think of how to make a maze. And I'm like, I have no idea how to do that with this. And then when you read the book, it's almost like, how could you not have thought of that? <laughs> and and like, I always say to people, the best ideas, and this is true in art as well and in performing, the best ideas are when everyone out there is thinking, man, how did I not think of that? <laughs> and so, um, but a lot of it is just kind of trying to just noodle over things. The, one of my favorite parts of the book is actually the celebrity look-alike section, which is later in the book. And that came actually with Ann Greenbaum, who you mentioned at the beginning, co-wrote Numerical Methods with me. And um, Ann and I were just having pizza together in the student union at the University of Washington when we were like, what could we do that isn't horribly complicated that gives you a sense of pattern recognition and like digit recognition and moreover facial recognition? And we just kind of thought, you know, I wonder if this would work. And it doesn't take very long to code if you are a mathematical computational coder. So I think it was once on an airplane and I did it and it took about it took about twenty minutes just to get a, a beta version. And then I took it in class and the students just loved it. So at that time I took the math and physical physics faculty of Davidson and tried to figure out who looked most like um, a celebrity and then gave the code to them and said, Now you try and it turned out they tried to figure out who looked the most like a baboon. <laughs> <laughs> it can be a little dangerous passing things over, but, but <laughs> it was really funny at the same time. So, um, but yeah, it's a it's kind of a combination of of different places, and often telling people what I'm doing and what I'm thinking about, and seeing what comes to mind for them, and then generally, as best I can, writing that down, because other people will come up with ideas outside my frame of reference, and um, that helps me think in broader and new ways. You know, it's just listening to your to your answer. Something that really strikes me is, and I and I could be way off, but I uh, 
but my hunch is often enough right, is that being a performer and writing a book like Math Bites, both of those are, are practices in relating to your audience. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's a very good point. Um, one of the big things for me with Math Bites is I really wanted the book to be a book that people who knew me only as an artist and don't know me as a math professor, they know I am, but they know me as an artist. I mean, the numerical methods book is a textbook, so you can see elements of who I am in that book because we have, like, numerical analysis as it applies to the CGI effects of Yoda and stuff like that. But nonetheless, it's a, it's a junior, senior level textbook. And, um, but Math Bites, I really wanted to, to be something where my art friends and performing art friends could say, there's Tim. You know, there is the Tim I know. And, and then my math friends could also say, ah, there's Tim that presents as well. And I felt like the book really developed. It took time and it was, it wasn't easy to, hit that mark, but it was actually an English, English professor at Davidson when I thought I was done with an earlier draft that said to me, be sure you write your book. Uh, you're the only one who has to live with this on your bookshelf for the rest of your life and may read it again or at least look at it again and again. Most people look at it once, maybe twice. Be sure you can. it's the book you want and that, that really reflects you. And it turned out I, I, it took about four months for me to that just kept resonating with me. And then I did do a, kind of a rewrite of the book that has its particular um, style. And it's, it had the whimsy in it before, but it really took on this, I don't know, this certain take it has now that is, is very reminiscent of the way I teach. And like one of my students says, I teach in kind of vignettes that I, I don't really believe somebody's going to sit there for 50 minutes straight, you know, <laughs> and just hang in there. And so... It's a, like, you know, with you and me right now, we talk about different questions, so you have change of gears. Right. Oh, yeah, ab- absolutely. And, and, and I think the way you write is a very natural way um, for people to relate to material because your book has a lot of story to it. And, yeah. and, and I think, I, you know, I would, I would go as far as to say it's probably somewhere in human DNA that... Mm-hmm. You know, somehow the way we process the world, that that story can be very meaningful to us. Yeah. And, and so, so I think there's there's something magic um, about that way of relating to people. But let me ask you about something. Um, a little bit of a eh, esoteric isn't quite the right word, but um, a little bit of a subtle perhaps question it th- there was an interview that you did and i will link to it in, in the blog article that goes with this audio um i can't remember who it was but you did an interview with someone at, at the princeton university press mm-hmm. and you made the statement that many think mathematics is about numbers mm-hmm. and i know exactly what you mean but i want to hear you say okay. it and and maybe you know Maybe there's a nuance that I miss, but I, I want to I want to hear you say it to our listeners. Sure. Um, what it, what is mathematics about? I think a lot of people, um, when they think about math, think that mathematicians. Like, I, I often feel like when someone learns I have a PhD in math, they think that like I must have like what does that even mean? Like you created something new, and like what could there be new about numbers? 
And I think sometimes people think that mathematicians have this ability to look at a large set of numbers and like the way Hollywood will have them glow and you suddenly see something. And I tell my students in class, if the numbers are glowing, you pretty much probably need to go to bed and, <laughs> and try again later. And um, I think that math is more about learning to look at the world in particular ways or even the abstract world of mathematical structures in a particular way that helps you analyze things and build things. For me, it's often building math models that can be um, predictive. And it doesn't mean perfect. It just means more predictive than we can be without it. And I think for a lot of people, that's not something they necessarily think of with math. And then there's the whole kind of graphical way of working with math, like infographics. And I, one of my classes is working on infographics right now. And for some people, that is something they're very good at when algebra might be something that they struggle with. And they're still being mathematical in very important ways, like a topologist. And I don't know how they do some of the stuff they do. It's incredible. And that's because their skill set is so matched to that branch of the field. And, and when I perform, I'll often say to people, if you don't like math, it's very likely that it's just that you haven't seen the branch of math that fits you. So if you just hang in there, you'll go farther down the buffet and you'll find things you just love and adore, but you just have to hang in there and, and believe that there, you know, there isn't just this one type of food all the time. And for me, in classes, if you can get students to move beyond some of that internal dialogue that they may have that's negative, sometimes I can't tell if somebody struggled with math because they're very good in certain areas that, you know, that, uh, and somebody just told me last week, man, you know, I just, I wish I'd been a math major and he's an English major. And I'm like, well, now you know you can use math skills and think of the wonderful things you can do in your literary analysis. And I'd love to know what you end up, end up discovering. And so that's kind of what I mean when I say that people think of math as numbers and there's this just huge expanse of ways that you can explore the world with math, that you can do it simply with numbers, but you don't have to be bound even to arithmetic, which honestly a lot of mathematicians can even struggle with because it's, we don't necessarily do it that frequently, <laughs> which can be kind of surprising. Right, and, you know, and nowadays I would argue that you know, short of understanding what arithmetic is about or, or beyond just an understanding of, of what arithmetic is about and perhaps the ability to ballpark calculations, yeah. I don't think there's really any value in not using a computer. Yeah. Or, well, start with a calculator, right, to do, yeah. or, your, or your cell phone that has a calculator to do arithmetic. And with tools like Wolfram Alpha yeah. or Mathematica, um, you can even, even, even calculus computers. I'm sure Mathematica can do calculus better than just about any student. <laughs> yeah. And you know, and and yeah. and for those who are not familiar with with Mathematica, it does mathematics symbolically. So it's not trying to approximate the solution to a problem by slicing up whatever you're trying to do into a million little rectangles and adding up their area. It is actually yeah, it does the calculus. It it, it, it is manipulating the symbols. Yeah. Um, to, to, to do it. So I, I think in in this current day and age of um, calculators and computers can do the heavy lifting grunt work 
if anything, this frees us up yeah, to do more and more of the creative yeah. things and then use the use the computer to validate that yeah. what we're doing makes sense. Yeah, that's a very good point. Um, so I'm also interested to know among the 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 many um, math bites that you have in the book, and I and I should have said this before, but bite in this context and in the title of the book is B Y T E, so it's a computer <laughs> bite. Yeah, it's it's not it's not somebody being bitten by Pac-Man or although you do have a Pac-Man on the cover there. Um, and you know, and for those who are not computer people, a byte is a collection of those zeros and ones organized into into a logical unit. In the old days, um, well, there were you know eight bits of zero and one, and I'm sure before then there were even smaller bytes. And now they're you know they they keep getting larger, 16 and 32 bit um, bytes and words and all kinds of things. But anyway, um, so there's a there's a there's a pun there, some whimsy in the title of the book, even. Yeah. Um, bite versus bite. Um, so, in that book, is there a favorite bite of yours? Um, I, I don't. It's funny, I work in ranking, and yet I often don't think in absolute favorites. But I think that um, one of the two places that I probably look with the most affinity on the book, just that I just so enjoy it. The part where we use M&Ms to do integration in a very simple way is really meaningful to me because I worked that out with uh, an undergraduate at Davidson, and I really enjoy that part of the book just because of my memories of working it out with him. And uh, then he also helped with the uh, vanishing puzzles where you have three pieces to a puzzle and you flip the two, the top two pieces on the top row and something appears. And it's, even, even though we both coded it, it was very intriguing. We totally understood why, but it still played with our mind. Yes. <laughs> so I love that example. Yeah. Yep. And then um, there's a part with um, estimating the value of pie with uh, chocolate chips. And I did that with teachers. And... Um, it was they all just took it immediately to their classrooms and so interestingly the way you talk about it, that I write in stories it's usually the stories behind the ideas that make each of them a lot of fun and the mazes the part with the mazes is really fun because I'm often creating them now and giving them as uh, gifts to people if I can not all images can be created equal so sometimes it's just too busy and I can't pull it off but that's been a lot of fun. Um, that's not something I would have thought of when I created it. I was just like, wow, this is cool and easy to explain. So, Right. In fact, I remember you offered me a maze picture, so I'm going to have to see oh, yeah. if I can find, I don't know if it would be one of me or maybe one of my German Shepherd Sandy. <laughs> yeah. um, That'd be fun. Okay, I'll, I'll see if I can find one that, that, that would do well as a maze and then, and then post it on the blog. Sure. Um, but... You, I, have, I, I, I want to give you kudos for, for doing a great job of answering that question. I was a little hesitant to ask you because it's, it's like asking a mother or a father, who's your favorite child? <laughs> exactly. It's like, uh, but, but all right. I'll, I'll, yeah, just read pages 52 to 65 and just stop. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. right. Um, okay, let me, looking at um, some questions here. You are 
Um, oh, let me ask you this one. So you are the, the Mathematical Association of America's first ever math ambassador. Now, now talking about stories, there's got to be a great story here. So tell us about that. Yeah, the um, Mathematical Association of America, particularly the executive um, director, Michael Pearson, uh, really wanted to establish this position, and um, it's springboarded into several people holding that, which makes a lot of sense when you know that the idea is that he finds people who, in some sense, continue to do what they're already doing, but then they particularly think of ways that it can emphasize the goals of the Mathematical Association of America, which is largely engaging teaching, particularly at the college level, of mathematical ideas. And so Michael talked to me quite a bit about the program, and then we dialogued a lot about what it could, what it could be and what it could mean. And then I gave one of the Math Encounter presentations, which is a large lecture series at the Mathematical Association of America in January 2014 of this year. And Michael came and introduced me, and that was when he actually announced that I would be the uh, inaugural math ambassador. And now there are, the last I checked, there were three of us. And so um, each of us has very different things that we do. And it's just wonderful because the MAA, as it's known in the math world, is just a fabulous organization and often has inspired me and has always been very affirming of both the rigorous things I do and the whimsical things I do because um, I'm often very focused on getting people engaged. I mean, I actually switched from the kind of research you mentioned at the beginning at the National Labs, which I enjoyed very much, into the work with Amy Langville in part because I knew I could engage even more students into it. And um, I just love seeing people get engaged in math. And so I think that that was part of the reason the MAA was interested. And they also know there's a lot of international interest in the um, Mime and Math show. We'll be in, we've performed in the Netherlands and then we'll be in Korea and possibly Japan. And then there's also interest in Spain and Great Britain, Greece, and a few other countries as well. Oh, that's, that's, that's really exciting. I, in the 80s, I was an English teacher in South Korea for a year, and, and Korea is, is a wonderful country. Oh, I, that's I really love the people. I love the food. Oh, good. Uh, it's, a, it's a very warm and friendly um, culture. Oh, that's neat to know. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering if you know, I'm, I'm sure you do, um, James Tanton. Oh, yes. <laughs> um, He's wonderful. Yeah, I mean, he, right, um, your story reminds me a little bit of his. He has, I believe it's a, a doctorate in mathematics from, from Princeton, mm-hmm. and he fell in love with teaching the basics of mathematics. And for a number of years, uh, he was a high school math teacher, I think, at a, at a private high school. Yeah. And now, I think he has his own consultancy working with, with teachers to, to improve the, the math education system. Yeah. And I can't remember what his role is with the MAA now, but is he like a visiting professor yeah. or something? Yeah, they started a visiting mathematician program. Okay. And um, James was, I think that was the role. They may even have a new name for what he was doing. But in the fall of 2013, maybe the whole year, he was involved with the MAA in developing, his project was to develop 
online resources through the MAA for teachers. And yeah, James in particular, there are several mathematicians who have that um, ability. He has the ability to make you look at known concepts in very new ways. And it's, it's just delightful because you think about what you already know in a new way and you learn something new. He's got a real knack for that. Right. Uh, yes, I, I interviewed him. I've done about three dozen of these podcast series over the last couple of years or so, and he was one of the the people that, that I interviewed. And when I learned about his work and um, saw a bunch of his YouTube videos, I like instantly fell in love with him. Yeah. And I, I remember fondly one of his things he talks about, you know, what what is the meaning of pi? Yeah. And then apply that to a square. Yeah. If, you know, what what is pi for a square? What is yeah. pi for a triangle? Yeah. And it's a great example of, you know, we just take it for granted. You know, yeah. it's the ratio of the circumference to the diameter. But, you know, but what does that mean? Yeah. You know, it's yeah, like we exactly. can spout out it, formulas, but when we think about it, there there is some meaning. There, there's some reason we actually care about what pi is. And yeah. then he twists your brain and says, okay, what if you had to do that to, you know, figure that out in the context of a square? What does that mean? <laughs> yeah. And so, so like you, he enjoys playing with simple ideas, and then go very deep. Yeah. And that's that's the elegant piece of take a simple bit of mathematics that that a child can understand, and a professional mathematician can't solve. Yeah, yeah, that's well said. Yeah. Um, let me ask you. I know you have some involvement with the Museum of Mathematics, which I, yes. did it open, was it in 2012? Yes, you're right, December 12, 12, 12. Yes, uh-huh. that's right, it was, it was at the end of the year, and one of the principals there is, is it, is it George Hart? Yes, he was part of the original concept team. He was part of the team when it first um, was created. By the time it opened, he'd already branched off into new projects, Oh, I, I didn't know that because I, I know the connection between him and his daughter, V, oh. or maybe she pronounces it Vi Hart. Yeah, Vi Hart. Uh-huh. And, you know, when she's done her, you know, I'd love to get her on the podcast someday, but I think she's hard to reach. Yeah. Um, but a, a very mathematical family. So tell me about your involvement with MoMath, Museum sure. of Mathematics. Well, I learned of MoMath when it originally was beginning and had a traveling exhibit, and... Um, in a, in a sense, very similar to Math Bites, they take ideas and present them in simple ways that kids can enjoy, and their parent, even a, someone with a Ph.D. in math, can be sitting right next to their child and be equally engaged, possibly at a very different level. And I was just totally taken with it, and so I found contact information and just started emailing all kinds of ideas that came to mind, totally unsure if that was even helpful for them. and. About uh, six to seven months later, um, with that started conversations, I was on the advisory council, and then um, about a year later, I was asked to chair the advisory council of various academics and people in the business world who help with the kind of intellectual uh, backbone and content of the museum. And so I've been involved uh, for, I don't know, three or four years now, and uh, I absolutely love being involved with the museum. And it's a amazing. It's in Manhattan. It's just south of the Empire State Building, and just they've had 
an amazing number of people go through, and children love it, and then adults enjoy it too. It's, if people don't know much about it, it's basically like a hands-on science museum, but rather than having exhibits that deal with concepts of physics or chemistry, its ideas in mathematics, a lot of it um, is very spatial in, um, in content, but it, not all of it. You get to ride a, uh, a tricycle with square wheels, and the ride is smooth because, of course, the track can't be flat or it wouldn't be. And then downstairs, you can make a fractal tree of yourself where you stand in front of it and it replaces your arms with a replication of your torso, and then it looks for the arms that would be on those smaller branches and replaces it with a smaller version of your torso. And as you move, the branches move, and it's just it's it's really fun. And when we go to Manhattan as a family, my two children want to go to MoMath, and it's just wonderful to go and explore and um, for me to have lots of fun with exhibits. I remember back when it was 250 sticky notes on a whiteboard and then to see it in actuality and actually see the new exhibits that are coming that are in development and then the ones that are even farther down the pipeline to come out. It's a very exciting thing for mathematics, both here and then also around the world. There's a lot of international interest in MoMath. So do you so do you consult? Do you do you, so you do you have a role in deciding what future exhibits will be? Yeah, the advisory council has. We um, do give input on both the uh, mathematics of the ideas and then our input on um, which we think will work and won't. Um, we don't necessarily. It's not really like a veto power or anything like that. And I'm not really sure that would ever be the place of the advisory council because. Sometimes, like, there, there are a couple, I can't think what they are now, but there were a couple exhibits that I really had a hard time even seeing why they were excited about them. Um, but I remember when I went, when it, I was at the opening, um, the moment I saw it for real, I was like, oh. I mean, <laughs> like, that was completely outside what I was able to think. Even with architectural drawings and, you know, George Hart and Glenn Whitney and Cindy Lawrence all talking about it and Tim Nissen, the architect, sometimes it's just beyond what you can perceive. And so, um, but like one of the things we do is we'll talk about um, the outreach and how, what impact can the museum have. The museum is much more than just the physical place and they, they have a lot of impacts um, very broadly. So the advisory council does help with the exhibits, but then it also helps with the, the fact that MoMath has an important place now in the mathematical community, which is incredible. It's well-deserved, but at the same time, when you think of it didn't even exist, you know, eight or ten years ago at all, it's, it's remarkable um, what they've been able to accomplish, and it's been neat to be part of that. Yeah, I, I, I grew up in New York, and I, I haven't been back in a number of years, but mm. I lived on 25th Street no. near, near the FDR Drive, and so this is on 26th Street. Is it near Fifth Avenue? Yeah, it's it's right um, it's right next to it's on Madison Square Park. Okay. Um, and so it it's just on that. So it's right next to the um, um, Flatiron Building. And when you walk out of the museum, you just yep. you can almost see the Flatiron. You can't you can except for trees. <laughs> no, <laughs> right. So it's, so it's it's fascinating to me that you know I you know grew up just. You know, just a few miles, maybe two miles or so. Wow! From from where the museum is now, has has anyone considered having some kind of a traveling show? Yeah, they just um, they've had a traveling show since the beginning, 
And then they're probably, um, they have a, that was a large traveling show. They have a smaller version that, I think it's called Midway to Go. I may have that terminology wrong. They have a smaller one that travels to exhibits around the country. And then um, currently they even have a version that um, is going to other countries, and um, or at least there's interest in other countries. Because the only reason I know that is I had to find somebody who could translate into a particular language that <laughs> a country was trying to work on the uh, textual content related to some of the exhibits. So I'm not exactly sure at what place that's in, but um, there's interest in that. And then there's also some interest in creating kind of satellite museums um, where there wouldn't necessarily only be one nomad. And so we'll see. Um, there's an awful lot going on. Um, if I ever want to feel like I'm not busy, I just um, get in contact with people in MoMAS. <laughs> it's just unbelievable, everything that is happening with that museum. It's very exciting. Well, you know, it, it, yes, I've, I've, I've been curious about it since the beginning, so at, at some point I may um, shoot you an email and ask you to make an introduction with whoever oh, the yeah. right person is sure. to, um, to, to you know, get on the phone with me and do one of these podcasts. I think that, oh, that'd be fun. Yeah, I think so. Um, let me ask you one other thing. We're eh, we're getting close to our our hour here, uh-huh. but I want to ask you. Um, before we got on this recording, you told me that you were working on a course um, for the the great courses, the, the teaching oh, yeah. company. Mm-hmm. Um, tell us about that. Yes, that'll be released, and um, the the target is August of 2014. And it's on data analytics, so it's uh, 24 lectures, 30 minutes each, on um, kind of big data and data analytics. So we go from, we do talk about March Madness, we talk about sports analytics and clustering, to neural networks, having a computer think like a human brain and, and self-learning, and regression, and, um, and then just big ideas. One thing I love about the great courses is that they, they're not just interested in um, like it's not a course where you're trying to teach people to get to a test that you can then assess them. Some of it's just how to think like a data analyst and how to look at the world in that way and how to even understand the data deluge that we stand within. It's been delightful, and they work very closely and help. And um, I, I just finished, actually, um, just two days ago, and in the very last moments I said, you know what, if nothing else, just beyond the whole video content of this, um, I have so much stuff to take with me to class. <laughs> It'll just be wonderful, all the stories I have of math through the lens of data analytics transforming the world. So, yeah, it'll, it'll be a, a fun series for people. So who, who is the audience for that? Um, great Courses really is an adult audience, but it's, it's not something like a MOOC where they're trying to teach um, t- uh, course content. A lot of it's people kind of um, 30 and over. It's people who've already graduated from college. Um, a lot of Davidson students mentioned they do watch some of them, but it's mainly an enrichment thing. It's not job training. And uh, so, like, my parents, um, they're in a retirement place, and so out of all the projects I work on, I think that my great courses lecture series is the thing that they're the most <laughs> excited about. And so um, they can hardly wait for it to come out and people will watch it and learn about data analytics and how it's transforming the world. Well, all right. I will, we'll, we'll have to 
to, to get that because I have been curious about big data you know, being being in the search engine yeah. world, and yeah. my impression has always been that it's this this word, this term that everybody throws around and nobody knows what it means. There's a lot of truth to that. One of the things I was pleased with with the great courses is that this really is data analytics, so it's how to use math to look at data, and it can be big or small. You can, you can gain tremendous insight from small data sets, and so you really – sometimes I do get frustrated with big data because it's almost like you need lots of data. Well, if you have lots of sporadic, unorganized data that you just collected just to collect data, you probably aren't going to find much. <laughs> you really kind of need to know what you're doing and why you're doing it in order to have a scientific – you don't just walk in a lab and just sporadically perform experiments. And the same thing's true with the data analytics. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, I, I, my, my favorite example of data analytics is how, you know, credit card companies are, you know, do their best to, well, on, 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 a couple, on two, di two different things. One is they, how they do their best to predict whether there is a fraudulent transaction. Yeah. Right, so they, they have to process a lot of data and look for lots of patterns, and every now and then they will freeze somebody's credit card because they think it's being used fraudulently. Yeah. And and of course it's a it's a razor's edge because you don't want to you don't want to be paranoid and yeah. and shut down lots of people's credit cards and generate a lot of um extra work for everybody. Yeah. Um you don't you don't want to have too many false alarms there. Yeah. Yeah, we have a lecture on anomaly detection and discuss some of that. It's tricky and because, you know, it, you know, a lot of life is not doesn't have that anomaly in it, and yet that's precisely what they need to look for. And the whole point is it doesn't happen often, so it can be pretty tough to. It's not as simple as just looking for an outlier because we all kind of have behavior that can be an outlier. And like you're pointing out, you don't necessarily want to freeze somebody out from the credit card just because they do something slightly different or even quite a bit different. But you really are trying to figure out when it really is pretty clearly not normal behavior by one individual. Right, and, and, and the second example I think of you know, for big data is you know, credit scores. You know, mm. Are they meaningful? You know, where, uh, you, you know people will, will get really unhappy when the computer makes a mistake and tells yeah. them that they have bad credit and the computer's wrong. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah, that... Um, that uh, the, the ranking stuff I do kind of has elements of that in there. Is when if you create a model that you know has some mistake in it, then you can come up with completely bizarre results. And sometimes it's that you, the model actually, if I were to say it in words, makes sense. But when you get down to the mathematical derivation, um, it doesn't. You've made some approximation that just doesn't fit the real world simulation. And so suddenly it's just not going to create meaningful results. So those things are hard, um, but it, the hardness in it is part of what can make it interesting. I'm not going to necessarily say fun when we're talking about those examples, but <laughs> it's interesting. And in sports and stuff, it can be quite fun. Right, right. I mean, right. Some of these big data, data analytics problems, the stakes are really high. Yeah. And you really want to get it right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay, I've got two more questions for you sure. here in, in, in the winding down part of this interview. Um, first is, is there another book or 
big data, well, I was going to say not big data, but big project in the works. Yes, I'm writing actually a book for the Mathematical Association of America on applications of linear algebra. And so it will um, talk about how you can use linear algebra in linear systems in computer graphics, like making someone look like they disappear on screen, like teleporting or Harry Potter disappearing. And then um, it'll talk about clustering and how you can um, group uh, movies into mathematical genres if you had um, a bunch of ratings from different people, like with Netflix, and then um, just a whole bunch of different examples. And that one is actually targeted toward um, advanced high school is the target. It's a book series. I've forgotten the name of the book series offhand, but it's a book series of the Mathematical Association of America that's targeted for that level. And so um, that should be out by the end of the year if I can stay. It's, <laughs> it's been a little harder with the March Madness interviewing, but um, starting actually tomorrow I'm back writing um, very diligently because I really, we really want that book out. And that will actually connect to uh, a MOOC that I'm doing in uh, 2015 for Davidson College that will also be on applications of linear algebra, particularly with these applied and maybe characteristically sometimes somewhat whimsical um, applications like having somebody disappear. <laughs> oh, very cool. So, so do drop me a line. Um, oh, sure. When, when the book comes out, I'm I'm sort of out of. I have to say, I'm out of the MAA loop. Um, there was a time when I would get some books from the MAA, and if anybody's listening from the MAA, um, you know, I would love to get back into that that loop for. Uh, and nowadays, when when people want to send me math books, I first find out what the book is about, and I say, um, if it's you know if it's the kind of book that I think my listeners would enjoy hearing about, yeah, um, then I will take a review copy because people say, oh, I'll send you a review copy. We just want you to write a v- review. And I got yeah. burnt out writing um, book reviews, but I love talking to people like you and and hearing your stories. Yeah, yeah. So we'll. So I think I need to go back to the MAA website and see if I find yeah. um, an interesting book, and then I guess I can I can ask you or James for a sure. connection there. Yeah, that would be easy for either of us to do for you. Yeah. Okay, and then the last question, and this is the question that I ask just about everyone. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's a very broad question. I get beaten up regularly for 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 the question being too broad, but <laughs> I, I keep asking it. What advice would you give parents um, whose child was struggling with math in school? Well, um, as any parent would probably say, is that first of all, it depends on your child. But once I say that, um, part of what I mean by that is, is what interests your child, and and what what types of things does your child um, is your child attracted to. And then if you can, look on the Internet for, like James Tanton or myself or Art Benjamin or Edward Berger, who did a lot of work earlier. Um, He's now a college president. He still does stuff in math. There are all kinds of mathematicians. There's Patrick Connor, Anna Weltman, and Math Math Munch, who are putting material out there that can engage kids in, again, this variety of ways. And sometimes if you just look up examples of math, like I tend to have a strong application oriented and then that certain sense of whimsy that um, 
for me, like in class, sometimes I don't have to actually say, this is how this works. But just to be able to say, you know what, probability connects to this. And even if I don't explain exactly how, just knowing that the, what they're learning connects to something can be fun. And sometimes, I know if, if somebody isn't math-oriented, it can be like, well, how am I going to figure that out? If you know they're learning probability, then look for something that uses probability. And that's all. And sometimes just being able to say it connects can really energize a child in terms of um, the connections in the field. And again, books like Math Bites and a slew of other books that are very fun with math, just take a break from the normal content and um, estimate the value of pi using chocolate chips <laughs> and things like that that just remind people that math is often a puzzle that it's either a puzzle about the real world or it's a puzzle and a problem. And if you can look at it as a puzzle, it can be fun to solve. And in like a jigsaw puzzle, you don't sit down and know the answer. You sit down and part of the joy is standing in the unknown of what piece to use. And the same thing can be true with math. And we just have to have the patience and diligence to learn the discipline of standing in the unknown. I love that. I, I you know, speaking of story, um, I, mean, I love the story, the metaphor, right, of standing in the unknown of that jigsaw puzzle. Because absolutely, yeah. when I've done jigsaw puzzles, the joy has been, right, every little piece yeah. that, that comes into place. And in, in a way, it's almost a letdown, a letdown when, when the last <laughs> piece goes in. It's like, oh, that's it, huh? Yeah. I'm and done. I think that yeah, exactly, and I think that if people can learn this, sometimes I think people think they're supposed to know the piece. Darn, I didn't think of that. And that's why I like the analogy to a jigsaw puzzle. Of course you didn't know what piece to use. And that was part of the point. And I think that math, if you can learn that, no, you're not going to know. You just try until you figure it out. And part of it's learning to think that way, learn to think of pieces you could try until you find the right one, can really help people not only be better at math, but enjoy the process more. And that, that type of thinking is valuable much in a very broad way, far beyond the problems that we might be posed in the mathematical classroom. Yes, I, I a thousand percent agree. I, you, know, you know, math is, you know, is my first love. Yeah. And I have made my living forever as a computer techie. Yeah. And it has very much a mathematical way of thinking just you know in solving um you know writing a computer program and you know learning new technology and it's not behaving the way i want yeah. it to if i can step back and and breathe and go oh yeah. i just don't have all of the pieces of the puzzle together yeah yeah good point yeah and um well this this has been delightful this has been yeah. a, a really wonderful interview i appreciate the time i um i'll be letting you off the phone so you can start working on um, continue <laughs> to, wor to work on that book for the maa yeah. well, thank you <laughs> well very good so 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 there you have it folks tim chartier inspired by math thanks again for for joining me this afternoon